This is obviously a very disappointing night for the Labour Party. I want to also make it clear that I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take going forward. It's not, it's not Corbynism. There is no such thing as Corbynism. The world in March 2020 looks almost unrecognisable from the world we left behind in 2019. The Labour leadership election, which had dominated headlines for weeks, has now fallen off the news agenda due to the coronavirus pandemic, which has created a global health and economic crisis unprecedented in modern times. But with just over a week to go before the next Labour leader is announced, and with the country facing a once-in-a-lifetime crisis... The next leader has a mountain to climb to even stay relevant in such a fastly developing news cycle. However, to be able to move forward effectively, the next leader of the opposition needs to understand and address the mistakes made by the past leadership, which in itself will be no small feat. Hello and welcome to Corbynism the Postmortem, with me, your host, Oz Katerji. In this week's episode, which is the last one we recorded before the COVID-19 pandemic had reached Europe, we are finally diving into life in Jeremy Corbyn's office during his tenure as leader. With us to explore factionalism, Lotto's response to the anti-Semitism crisis and Labour's election results, we are privileged to be joined by a very special guest, James Mills, former special advisor to both Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell. Before we start, I'd like to thank everyone who has listened to Corbynism the Postmortem so far. With the leadership election drawing to a close, there will be new projects to announce in the very near future. And I'd like to thank everyone again who has so far signed up to my Patreon. This podcast is a 100% solo project and is currently my only source of income, so I'd just like to make sure everyone who has signed up to support the project knows how grateful I am. If you'd like to support the show and help me create my next project, please consider becoming a subscriber over at patreon.com forward slash ozcategy or donating via PayPal at paypal.me forward slash ozcategy. And now, on with the show. Hello, James. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me on. No, no, it's a pleasure. So can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and the role you fulfilled in the Labour Party? Uh, yeah, no. Um, I, I, do you mean, I suppose you mean mainly for Jeremy, obviously, because I've worked in politics um, for 10, maybe 15 years under different leaderships. But I suppose my last job, as it were, was working for, I was a strategic advisor at Jeremy Corbyn uh, for uh, up till, I think it was January 2019. Um, before that, I was head of comms for the Shadow Chancellor. Um, and I and obviously Shadow Treasury team, you get badged in with that. So I just, I, I might, and that job was. Um, mainly focused on sort of shaping Labour's economic policy but it was more than that because also I started before I worked for John I also um, was I worked on Jeremy's first campaign in 2015 the summer there uh, from July and I sort of head up the comms on that campaign I was brought in by um, Simon Fletcher, who was running that campaign. Uh, ironically, now today he's running the Keir Starmer campaign, but he was running Jeremy's back then. And I've known Simon for donkey's years, many, many worked for Ken. Um, and um, he, he, I was working at CWU at the time, and he knew that. He needed someone, he said to me, that can sort of got political comms and come in and sort of organise their, uh, organise their communications and someone who journalists knew. So I came in and provided that role and had a, a bit way of sort of like providing definition and explaining policy. Um, and 
to sort of a wider audience. So I did that, and then I went back to CW after that, after we won. But then a week later, I think I went back on the, I think it was TUC Congress, I went back and got a bit of a hero's welcome from old boss Dave Ward and a few others, because no, when I went onto the campaign, no one was expecting us to win. <laughs> so it was quite a hell of a turnaround. Um, um, and I came back, and then I think after a day or something like that, Dave sort of said to me, look, we're going to have to send you back. Um, there was a sort of, um, uh, they were a bad week, um, which I sort of predicted before I left might happen. Uh, and then I got brought back and I had the option. I could have probably gone, he said to me, do you want to go to Lotto or uh, or John's office? Because I worked closely with Seb, who was working for John at the time, uh, on the campaign. And I've always, in sort of economic policy has always been my sort of passion. So I sort of, um, I was, and I, John used to chair the campaign meetings for the uh, for the campaign and sort of, sort of they weren't really grid meetings but as close as you get to them and I always quite respected him and I thought he was quite erudite so I ended up working for him and I did that and then I carried on doing that until I went over to work for Jeremy in Lotto as it were towards the end of my time um, I suppose what I was many did when I, in the early days when I was working for John it was just me and Seb to be honest with you for the first four or five months I think it was before we got other people on board and you know that was you know we were probably doing a job of five people at one time because you know you're doing everything it took ages for us to get resources in and get more people uh and my job then was everything from policy to comms and everything in between sort of what they call it sort of strategic advice i guess um and that and then we actually got more people on board and i suppose my, my early successes or things i'm quite proud of from that period was um John's first fiscal event, which was the pre, I keep calling it PBR, which is what Labour used to call it, but it's actually the autumn statement. Um, and that was sort of devising the strategy into that. And that, that really worked quite well. I cost them an, uh, a sort of alternative to what Osman um, was doing with tax credit cuts. And we even had Tory MPs powering us. But it's only remembered today for uh, a Chairman, Ma- sorry, uh, uh, Chairman Malbuck flying across the chamber, <laughs> which um, I had absolutely nothing to do with. Uh, but um, sadly, uh, Everything other than that, that people remember, we actually it was one of the first ways we got sort of a bit of a foothold into the economic argument. Uh, and the next bit was the our fiscal credibility rule. Um, uh, one of those things you sort of, it, I, although I, I sort of um, again, as I was going to help shape and name, um, <laughs> and it's, it, it served its purpose. And I think it sort of the point for that was more about, um, from my perspective, was one we wanted to. Um, it was about opening up a debate about how you're going to... Well, firstly, the fiscal rules, is, there's, there's multiple reasons why you have fiscal rules, um, especially in opposition. One of the things I thought was one of the mistakes of the previous regime, and it's not... I actually, you know, got a time for red balls, but I think the way they did the fiscal lock and they dropped it at the end, it, it, was, it was a gift to the SNP, and I thought it was a tactical error, and I always thought that a party of the left... Um, it, well, leadership rather than the left, the Labour Party has always got to get out the argument early on the economy and try and win it and sustain it over time. And one of the re- ways of doing that, I think, the fiscal rules that the paper that Ren Lewis and Porters had done had been around for a while. I'd read it before, um, <clears throat> but the main thing was adding into it. We added in the debt rule, which I did via Stiglitz, and we also beefed up something on the fiscal council aspect to it. Which people always forget. Um, and those were, so we changed it a wee bit because everyone says, oh, it's just a borrow to invest. But it wasn't, it's was a bit more than that. It was actually about one, being able to set the cornerstone of how we then go out and do our sort of policy agenda moving forward. But also adding, in, from my perspective, which not everyone agreed with, by the way, a constraint there on policy making. And I think, you know, I think that was quite an important part of what that was. The other part was obviously was from a very strategic point of view. When we landed, it was before the budget, when we knew George Osborne was going to miss his fiscal rules and one of them, reasons was was because of his fiscal charter everyone probably forgets now and I was the uh, I was the driving influence for why we didn't sign up to the fiscal charter six months previously um and um 
and then uh, but after that we need to have our alternative to the fiscal char so a lot of there's more than one reason for the fiscal framework that we brought in but as a result i think that was what underpinned a lot of the policy well, it was what underpinned the sort of the policy making going forward and from my approach it was about sort of aiming for i mean i hate using the term because it means so many different things for people but for me sort of fiscal credibility is quite important for the left um i i think that people think it's a left or right issue i just think it's you know one-on-one of politics if you want to spend other people's money you've got to make them believe that you can be trusted doing it and that doesn't matter if you're left or right uh and you know that's a fundamental i think and you know and that means answering some of those tough questions and to give you a a recent example because it's just the day after Super Tuesday <laughs> I'm, you know I'm supporting I want Bernie Sanders to get the candidacy of the United States but if he's going to ask me what I think one of his big problems he's come up against it's being able to explain his uh, how he's going to pay for his policies you know and, and you know you compare that with um, uh, with um, Elizabeth Warren for example um, you know so I think that's one that's a strategic communications problem that he has and I think what we did especially in 2017 which don't probably get enough credit for and it was that thing I was always sort of sometimes have an intel fight for but establishing that argument over we're going to pursue something but we're going to be able to explain it to people and it's one of the reasons me and John probably got on quite well to be honest with you because he agreed with me on that it was something we both agreed with he was his his politics was quite largely shaped by the 1992 general election uh, in which he sort of like lost but just marginally and he sort of he thinks largely that was due to Labour's fiscal position going into that and the way it was caricatured by the Conservatives back then. Uh, and I think he was right. Uh, and I think that sort of influenced him. And that's why, you know, someone with my CV, if, it, if you like, <laughs> could um, could, uh, could win some of those arguments because I think he trusted my opinion on some of these things. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but I always thought he did anyway. <laughs> that was the end of part one. But before we jump into part two, have you ever considered learning a new language? or picking up where you left off from your language classes in school? Well, I've recently signed up to Babbel, a language learning service that is designed to help you through your learning journey in a funny and smooth way. Babbel is designed to quickly get you speaking your new language within weeks, with daily 10 to 15 minute lessons. And honestly, with more free time on my hands right now, it's been a really great way to pass the time. Their lessons are lovingly created by over 100 language experts, that's real people, and not by a translation machine. And with Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian and German. Babbel is available as an app or online, and your progress will be synced across all of your devices. So what are you waiting for? Try Babbel today, just go to babbel.co.uk or download the app for free. And now, on to part two. So... Talk to me about the 2015 leadership campaign. No one was expecting you to win. And all of a sudden, Jeremy Corbyn was the front runner out of nowhere. And, you know, you were leading the comms for that. And you not only inspired the left in this country, as it were, to, to kind of band together and pick a candidate and back a candidate, but you inspired, you know, people around the world who looked at what was happening in Britain and thought, ah, look, you know, this other left movement is popular we can make it mainstream so yeah no I think if I look, go back to that so for me it's quite emotional so I just I, um, my first, well, first my first my, me and my wife we had our daughter that summer um, our, our eldest daughter and it was quite an emotional period for me in general um, I think I think when I look back then for me, it's, I've got quite fond memories. I know for some people I don't, but I do. It was quite inspiring. I remember walking into the TSA office and there was about four or five of us in the room 
Uh, <laughs> like, and to think, where, you know, it was a very small campaign in a room there, all behind sort of desks. You know, it was Manuel's sort of own private office. He had his office to the, he's a general secretary of the TSSA. He had his office um, just next to us, and he'd pop in now and then. And we had the sort of the, 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 the little bit outside it of like all these desks crammed in. And it was, it was quite, you know, it was, it was like, you know, working on a startup company sort of thing. It was very sort of small, low, sort of small key. And the great thing about it was the grassroots bit, because when you went out on the, out, there's all these people who, who just, Jeremy had this ability. I mean, I term him as sort of quite a charismatic leader. And what I mean by that, I know some people go, oh, what do you mean charismatic? Because some people, for example, you know, this is a podcast called The Corbin Autopsy. So, I mean, you know, this appeals to people who, let's just say, probably would not be probably fans of Jeremy Corbin and look at me when I say, charismatic, what? You know, <laughs> if I'm honest, they would, you know. So, post mortem, not an autopsy. So, there's like difference there. <laughs> so, well, you know, well, no, we don't want to. We don't want to. We don't want to be doing an autopsy, James. But uh, but but you get my gist. The people, I suppose, your first tier three audience will probably be people who would go, "What do you mean charismatic?" But what I mean is that, yeah, um, sort of Max Weber sort of approach to charismatic leadership is that you know. Um, there, he had an ability one-on-one and in certain groups to appeal to people on a level that some of the leaders don't, if I'm honest with you. He had that natural ability. He'd walk on a train. And a lot of leaders have that. Like, you know, for example, Gordon Brown was known for that as well. Um, and um, on a personal level. Uh, obviously, like you have different forms of charisma, but I think Jeremy did. And... Um, and the, the great or one of the things I quite liked about that sort of summer campaign was it sort of inspired a lot of hope in people you regularly found that um, and I quite enjoyed it I mean for me the sort of touch paper when I knew things were sort of like changing was the, the was sort of the trade union hustings because that's when all the trade union activists sort of came they don't have one this time but they had one in, in 2015 and the um yeah, and that's when you sort of trade union activists, what Jeremy was saying on public ownership and uh, sort of on opposition to welfare cuts was really sort of like, it sort of, um, it sort of sparked a sort of heather, if you like, and it sort of, people were sort of, sort of getting really sort of, and also because he was an outsider. And I think also the problem we had, we just lost an election. No one thought we were going to win the next election. None of the candidates standing in that election were giving off a positive vision, an upbeat one. It was all sort of like, you know, sort of like, you know, you had people there saying, you know, we've got to get real and sort of like sort of hectoring down to the, the membership uh, and no one trusted those people who'd been presiding over the last two elections so I think that was a massive big massive change I think it was just a very upbeat campaign I think also the problem I think the thing not problem I think the, the, the th- we were setting out an alternative I mean look I'm not going to pretend that every single policy that came out but what it was about was like look can we do something differently I'm a great believer sort of in the wisdom of crowds and I think that's what you were sort of seeing was people who looked at the candidates and thought People were looking at the candidates in 2015 and they didn't think we were going to win the next election. I mean, ironic, they didn't think we were going to win in 2020 back then. So some of you might laugh and think, oh, maybe they were right. But (laughs) at the time, they didn't think that we were going to win. Uh, And I think they looked at the next election. I don't think the membership thought that. And they looked at the candidates coming forward and they saw no solutions to how you win the next election. Jeremy offered that. He offered hope and an alternative. and that was what I think that was the real sort of like thing it was about um, in that campaign. He struck a chord of the members and he said that like things don't have to carry on. I think there's also I think the great thing for me, I think the thing that Jeremy also is sort of the great deceit or something as I call it, is like sort of, you know, um, he we was able to wear sort of our sort of colours on our sleeve or sort of like, you know, talk, you know, sort of hearts on our sleeve. We could talk about from the heart what we actually generally believed in. Because there's normally in Labour Party elections, there's this sort of um, for the average Labour Party member I'm talking about, uh, there's this uh, thing where we go out and we talk about sort of the things we really care about, sure, start centres and that sort of like social economic justice. And then there's a sort of like mumbling of stuff that we try and, you know, regarding sort of, you know, 
taxation of business that we sort of like oh, around that as well you know you know what I'm trying to say um and our sort of approach especially to business if I was honest with you under the sort of the Ed Miliband and even when we was in government was almost like we were trying to parrot the Telegraph business page and I think there was a lack of awareness it was from a cultural triangulation I think there was a lack of awareness back then that you didn't need to do that that you you actually the whole point is you're trying to go out and set out your own vision for what this is and I think we had a very sort of insular way of looking at business and I think that's because our policy formation under Ed and also under Gordon Brown um, was very London focused and like what one of the good things about Joe we don't actually talk about and one of the things I brought through when I worked for John was we actually got quite close to the FSB and small businesses and we worked with them whereas in the past we just sort of mouthed what they wanted Wanted. We actually went and talked to them and, uh, and developed policy from them and adopted policy. And we actually had a really good relationship. I mean, when I mean we had a good relationship with the FSB, this might surprise you to hear this. They used to tell, they used to tell me, like most people when you go for with me at other events, we have a better relationship with you than we've had with any other, with other Labour leaderships. I mean, that, which might surprise you to hear that, but it was generally true, <laughs> you know. And I always remember John going, uh, doing stuff for the CBI, um, you know, and when he, well, I'll be honest, when I first did that stuff with John. For our audience, like in other countries or who might oh, not be aware, so the FSB. And, uh, Federation of Small Businesses. Yeah, and um, the CBI. CBI is the um, Confederation of Business and Industry, basically I actually probably got that last one wrong uh, but it's basically the uh, in the words of my dad the boss's union uh, <laughs> but, like, um, but basically like um, if uh, the federation of business is basically small business owners they could be people who own uh, from you know, nail bar salons to sort of very small companies and most people get that and the federation uh, sort of CBI represents the sort of big industry basically so one's big industry and one's small business if that makes sense um, uh, and um uh, to cut a long story short, um, you know, I think that came from that sort of, you know, they, they I always look at the, the, the elections, some of the summer, I know it's quite rambling, so you might have to edit a lot of this, but um, I always compare Jeremy's, uh, if I was going to look at my, my period on that, I went in there in July, I went all the way through the summer, and then I was right there on the day we won, and I had to take him um, to go sign the papers, uh, it was him and Tom Watson in a room, and um, it was a very awkward moment. <laughs> and um, yeah, as Jeremy signed the papers, and I, I used to have a picture of it somewhere. It was actually because I'm, I'm a very tribal Labour guy. For me, it was very sort of like, wow, I couldn't believe I've seen this Labour history. And I always compare it to sort of like the closest thing I've ever seen to an English Revolution. And people go, me, what do you mean by that? And I mean, when Jeremy, from the outside, the grassroots, as he were, won the leadership of the Labour Party. Um, I can't put into words what that did to the political structure of our country in some respects. And people go, oh, what, you, what I mean is that like people don't completely understand that the previous leadership of the Labour Party, you know, on a very basic level, take politicians. There was a lot of there was a lot of sorry, uh, political journalists. Most political journalists had the numbers of most of the shadow cabinet. You know, they could uh, most of the advisors they knew of when we came in. I mean, I was the only one that really knew a lot of the political journalists, if I was honest with you, um, of our of our organization. Maybe Simon Fletcher as well, a bit, but he always claimed he didn't. Uh, but like, um, but no, uh, but he, he obviously would have. Um, but my point being, there's not many of us, but between me and Simon, that knew as many of these people that worked in the operation. Um, and uh, when we first got in, but the, the reason why I think that matters is because what happened was there's this massive moment where the political journalists in our country work the thing called the lobby basically a lobby of lobby journalists and they all uh, they didn't know anyone in the labor leadership they didn't know what was going on and therefore their editors didn't know and they had the pressure from the editors to ask them what's going on and if you take things like the guardian that's meant to have the inside track of the labor party or the new statesman that went like that overnight and that's a massive thing um and that's before you get to other aspects of how the labor party as the main 
opposition part of our country operates that applies that check and balance the, the, the you know and the reason why it matters is that you had a group of people a center leadership that didn't have any of those sort of connections to you know the sort of establishment if you want to call it that and that change that's a huge tr- structural change in our politi- uh, politi- politics at that stage that i happen to see in my lifetime and it had good and po- good and po- it had positives and minuses obviously because i think the po- for me the negatives were that it set in trail that factionalism that we could never solve and that nearly all if i was going to look at all the negatives and all the bad things that sadly i think exacerbated what we lost in december it, it comes back to that sort of really nasty factionalism that sprung up from that sort of the people who were displaced you know the, take chukra muna for example a man who's considered to be a future leader of the labor party his career is you know gone and that all comes from that stemming of, the, of that trajectory of people who were in the labor party that trajectory was stopped and a whole new group assembled and i said when i say english revolution i don't know anything other than that in my lifetime that I've seen where that group of people from the outside the periphery have assailed and I think that's sort of like um it had, and I said it had huge changes politically as well I mean just to give you an example of of interactions with conservative MPs they knew a lot of the front bench just because by and large that's what happens when you shadow people you know they didn't really know our, our, our team or any of our stuff there's there's loads of issues where you know private businesses that you know wanted to be helpful just didn't know who to contact there was lots of lobby organizations just didn't have any access and that access issue was quite big and i think you know and then when you know it comes and it feeds back into a whole lot of things but i said i think on the power side of it influence with jeremy coming that that had a massive um taking all party politics out of it it had a massive impact on the sort of politics in our country so let's talk a bit about the factionalism and the early problems in the labor um Labour Party leadership sort of under Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, one of the sort of early moments was November 2015 was the Syria vote where Jeremy Corbyn was really against um, Britain responding militarily in Syria against ISIS. This had been just after the Bataclan attacks in Paris. So the atmosphere was quite, you know, tense in the country already. Um, YouGov polling put public opinion at 59% in favour of the RAF intervening in Syria with only 20% opposed. Um, so, but Jeremy Corbyn took the lead in, in trying to stop Britain from intervening in Syria. Um, this made him unpopular with sort of more moderate figures in the Labour Party. Um, and it was sort of the moment where people who were kind of new to him for the first time, mm. uh, who only knew about his economic, you know, the sort of economic message that he'd been sending, and, and, you know, maybe understanding that he opposed Iraq suddenly saw a side of him that maybe they hadn't before. Can you talk me through about kind of the rationale in the Labour leadership's office during that time and how it affected the relationship between MPs who may have been pulling together with Jeremy at that time to them suddenly going, actually, I don't know if I can work with this leadership anymore? Um, if I could be honest, I never really had any dealings with the foreign affairs issues I only I may dealt with economic policy and domestic policy I mean from my view of what went on though you know look it gets back to what I was saying about the factual thing I think the sad thing about the Labour Party because um, I see the Labour Party as my family if I'm honest with you I, Jerry Durst is a part of family I'm a very tribal Labour guy I'm the guy you know I used to say this in the 2016 leadership election to Owen Smith if you win I'll campaign for your leader and whoever wins out of this contest I'll campaign and be Labour Prime Minister and I, you know I've, I generally really believe that uh, I, you know and I'll campaign for any person on the Labour ticket regardless of that being someone 
you know, for the progress wing or whatever, if they're the Labour Party candidate, I'm out there campaigning for them. So that's my sort of take. And I think I'm quite an average sort of like Labour Party member like that. I think most Labour Party members look at it like I do. Um, and I think the problem for me, and this is why I look at the factionism probably slightly different than some, is that that factionism was always baked in because of that such a drastic change that happened in the power basics of the of the Labour Party. You know, I suppose if you look at the, you know, people talk about the Democratic Party, the establishment of the Democratic Party, it's a bit like that in the Labour Party. Back then, although Jeremy had won the leadership, he hadn't won the, the sinews of, of the Labour Party. The Labour Party was still um, administratively run by people very much opposed to him. And to be fair, that's not uncommon, by the way, because, you know, some sort of the Labour staffers union speaking up here. Um, when you work for the Labour Party, you have a generally negative opinion of whoever leads it because you just, when you're an official, you just want the party to do well, you know. You just look at them and say, oh, for fuck's sakes, you know, <laughs> stop messing up your lines. You know, you, it's, you know you're very much like you are there to serve the party but you know obviously at the very echelons of that you know Jeremy was even outside the pale for many of the people at the very directorate senior level of running the Labour Party and to be fair like even look, I'll be honest some of them had legitimate reasons I mean like they you know you just want to win elections when you work for the Labour Party and if your perception of how you won that next election you know your electoral strategy or your approach to electoral strategy you know Jeremy Corbyn is not the person you want to <laughs> be the candidate of you know I'll be honest or neither was Ed Miliband by the way but like that is the general starting point so there was always going to be that with the sort of the um, machine of the Labour Party if you like or the establishment part internally and then within the PLP as well I think a lot of people looked at Jeremy Corbyn when he became leader and saw their careers up in flames because they looked at this guy and it's like how the hell has he done this you know I've been an advisor I've been you know you know there's that sort of career trajectory some of them went on you know of the heavy lift and they seen this guy just jump over them so that was built in and also there's a genuine ideological shift because you know where Jeremy came from and some of his views and legitimately for some of these MPs some of these MPs are looking at some the doors I knock on that ain't going down very well you know no. national <laughs> security is a, yeah. is a very it's an important yeah. topic it's and, an emotive topic and, and, and it really is and Jeremy Corbyn's position Ooh. always now it also seemed to fly in the face of maybe John McDonald's position who seemed to have a more pragmatic approach to national security matters whereas Jeremy Corbyn was always you I know think Jeremy Corbyn and some of the people uh, who work for him they're from well, I'm not pretend to know a lot about this and of the people of that sort of section but it's from the sort of the non-aligned movement back in the day I think that's where the, the politics came from on, on international affairs and that sort of like you know approach of sort of opposing sort of um, imperialism where you find it and obviously predominantly western imperialism if you like and I think that's where it sort of comes from uh, uh, well, exclusively western imperialism in some yeah, respects I'm, so I'm not, yeah well I mean I think the non-aligned movement was basically not associated with big blocks of power but obviously in the modern era I mean obviously the USA you know is, uh, and especially for the last 30 or 40 years is, is the dominant power but I mean yes is the essential point um, I'm trying to make is that I think that's where the policy the, the sort of foreign policy values come from um, and I think that's why you've seen them hold certain positions and obviously when they're going to pursue uh, and, and for me as I said it comes back to the factionism because I think the problem with factionism is that it was just looking for a trigger point any trigger point. So yeah, the Syria obviously a, a trigger point. People are like, I'm going to die on that hill. You know, this is an issue. I'm going to go to the war, the leadership on. I'm going to have a real strong view on it. There were other issues as well that came up in that time. There were equally sort of real sort of trigger issues that created that division in the PLP. Well, his his history might be one of them. You know, you were yeah. brought in to manage manage comms, and suddenly you had to manage the public yeah. image of a man who had, you know. For Which better one? or for <laughs> but I mean, but you know what I mean. Yeah, for, no. for better or for worse, had gone on stage and said Hamas and Hezbollah are, are friends, and and suddenly you know, and and Jeremy Corbyn, as I understand it, is not someone that feels compelled to 
explain his actions or, or apologize for his past in that way. He he feels on, very on strongly the, about those things. One, so I think he did correct the record and he had said that look, that wasn't he didn't literally mean that. It. It's just his term of friend. And it is to be fair. Yeah, like friends you, like comrades, yeah, but I mean exactly. it's still think, when when you're talking about no, groups that do commit I, violent acts. I completely acts. agree, but I think to give context to it, and I think this comes back to sort of his better nature, he's just very he's a really nice guy. He entered the room and you know, you, people don't probably appreciate it, especially if MPs, you tend a lot of blooming meetings and he's he's entered the room and he's uh, gone in the room and said friends, comrades, whatever. And uh, you meant it in that context, not literally like, wow. hey, you're my friends, let's come round. No, for I, tea. I, I, I fully, you know? I fully agree with that. But again, <laughs> you know, you know we, we're doing your own Smith. Let's have tea of ISIS. I we, mean, sorry. I, <laughs> let's again, put it in context. Listen, you, you, you raise an interesting point. <laughs> But 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 Donald Trump seems to have that quality in that he he refers to the he referred to the Mullah uh, leading the Taliban as his uh, as a great guy or his friend the other day you know what I mean <laughs> so I mean it's, it's 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 not exactly inspiring statesmanship for people that you know especially people who may have lost family to oh, no, people in Hezbollah like, or his Hamas I said, or I, I said attacks I mean, some of these things aren't black and white I mean like Tony Blair going off into the desert I mean you know. Um, uh, Gaddafi, very I mean, much so. You know, very, very, very much know, we, so. We could go around all day if I was honest with you. I mean, like, but my 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 substantive point is, I mean, look, my 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 approach to if you want James Mills's view to foreign policy, uh, you know, my view's always been we should try and support democracies or the people who value democracy as much as we possibly can, wherever yeah. that should be. You know, my private views, you know, on Syria are probably different than Jeremy Corbyn's. If I was honest with you, on certain issues, you know, this might be on pop for some to hear, but I, I I support sort of a no fly zone policy if you for my private view. Um, um, but I completely, but for me, I was working, I didn't, my, my, my view is I can see where Jeremy was coming from as well. And I can see both sides of it. So like my sort of, um, um, sort of take on, on, on the issue was that what Jeremy was doing, that was his view. He had won a mandate to go there and he was essentially what he was against all forms of military intervention. The reason why he was against, um, the approach back then from memory was was primarily because of the escalation that happened and usually happens in these events and when you're in opposition you're not in government so you can't be quite clear so therefore your starting position is well how can I trust a conservative government that's had a situation like Libya as a disaster very recently now wants to go off another foreign uh, policy jolly and that's going to put lives at risk and you know as someone I said I appreciate if a no-fly zone that that's not just there's an aspect of no-fly zone that has boots on the ground you know do you think special forces aren't going to be there to support they will be you know if you don't believe that I've got a bridge to sell you for me personally that doesn't necessarily bother me but then I'm someone that like you know I say I have a different approach to these things but where Jeremy is coming from um, uh, and that, uh, what he was putting forward was very much a, a situation whereby, well, when does the special forces go in and then the civilians die? And, and uh, am I in opposition without any control or power over this really going to sign up for that? I'm not. And I think that's a legitimate position to have as an opposition leader. And I think the issue of the PLP, and I think the reason why it broke down so severely, is because the way the, the Labour Party works is the leader puts through a position, he's got a mandate from the members, and then you expect collective accountability in the shadow cabinet. That wasn't done, and I think the fee the sore feeling that was there was because, you know, Hillary used, you know, from what I'm led to believe, um, <laughs> what I was told and what I believe to be true, Hillary played a lot on the relationship with Jeremy, uh, based on his father, uh, Tony Benn, and um, and I think that there was an element of betrayal there that that was felt that like Hillary sort of like you know should have been a bit more supportive on this issue and instead grandstanded and was looking to run for making a sort of semi tepid leadership. There. So I think that's is, where it came from. This is Hillary Benn when he spoke at the yeah. uh, you know we've mentioned this before in the podcast. He addressed Parliament yeah, and he yeah. he spoke he, in favour of uh, the bombings yeah. against ISIS. Um, and he had formed there was lots of numerous briefings 
continuous briefings that allegedly came from his office and that we were constantly hearing. And the, if I was honest, there was validity to that. And then I think about six months later after the Brexit issue, it happened again. You know, and it's not a personal thing. It's Hillary Benton. I don't know the man from Adam. I don't particularly care. But if you want the context of what was going on, that was generally the case. I mean, there was a lot of the, there was a lot of smoke coming around from that area of division being sown. And you've got to understand the context. Six months before, Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the Labour, that is like the anathema for a lot of people. It was completely unsellable. Uh, but did he have a legitimate position going into that? You know, as I said, as someone who doesn't agree with him, I think he had a legitimate position. Okay, I mean, I don't necessarily share Jeremy's full beliefs on foreign affairs and stuff like that, but I think he had a legitimate point, and I think he had the right to pursue it. And I, and I, 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 have, no obje- I have no regret supporting him in doing so, because I think the reason why he was doing it was completely not legitimate. Um, and as I said, I've, I've, to give you quite clarity, I've, I've not always agreed 100% of every leader of the Labour Party. <laughs> <So> <laughs> was the end of part two. In the last episode, I spoke to you all about how ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online. But here's something you might not know. You can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Now that so many of us are stuck at home, it's only a matter of time until you run out of stuff to watch on Netflix. So this whole week, I've been using ExpressVPN to binge on series and movies from across the world. Handily, ExpressVPN is compatible with all your devices. Phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. ExpressVPN are also offering listeners of Corbynism the Postmortem three free months using the service. So if you visit my special link right now at expressvpn.com post, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself with ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com post. You did bring up um, that Tony Blair met, met, went off to make, meet Gaddafi, and I, I think that's completely, completely reprehensible what Tony Blair was was doing with Gaddafi around the time uh, of the you, Arab you go Spring. Back to when Tony Blair was also going off of Hosni Mubarak after he left office, it, I mean, one hundred percent. Him and Alastair Campbell have the his Middle East his Middle East role is yeah. is one of the things I've been so extremely critical of. Um, so we're we're on we're on the same page there, and I just noticed for you it's the same as you know campaigning for Tony Blair, even though you disagree with him. But what also you saw Jeremy Corbyn in the same way that this is this is you know I still think a Labour government is the best for this country for me, yes. no matter who who is leading it oh, yes. within within reason. So the worst day of a Labour government, as I was reminded recently, is better than the best one day of a Tory government. I'm very much of that belief. So, but but to the to the public and and so much of Jeremy Corbyn's you know P- PR image, as it were, was based on him being morally on the right side of history every single time. I mean, that's, I don't know anyone on the right but, side of history I, all the time. I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's not how the world... I don't believe... That that's not how, that's right not how the world works. But obviously, mm. at some point, that, that sort of idea, that image yeah. that was legitimately being presented in some... Not by me. Maybe, <laughs> not, maybe not by you, but... Uh, fine, you know, yeah, but, but I think it there was... are people, activists, who might always think that and say that. But that's, you know, equally you'll get activists who tell you that Tony Blair never did a single thing wrong in his life and would probably defend those no, actions. You, that are, you were just you are to- you are totally correct. So, so that comes on to my other question, which was the other major foreign policy issue that um, that rubbed the the public up, up the wrong way, which was the Skripal poisoning. Yeah. Um, you know, when that happened, rather than looking at the evidence like the government had and deciding this has to be Russia. Um, we need a strong response to protect ourselves. 
the PLP disagreed with this decision. The majority of the public seemed to have really disagreed with this decision. decision. Uh, but Jeremy Corbyn took a much softer line, which seemed to be in league with, well, not, which seemed to be in agreement with Seamus Milne, as it were, that, that Russia should be given the benefit of the doubt. Now, I'm not expecting you to defend any of that because it, it seems yeah, obvious that you, yeah. um, you, you, dis- you disagree with that. But I think again, if you worked with me, you knew I had quite a robust view of, of that situation. So, <laughs> so, so look, I mean, you and a lot of other, of other Labour, but, but here's one of the, the, the cracks in, in Corbynism where even if the public was viewed one thing, all of the party viewed one thing, Jeremy held a position that was closer to him and his sort of faction as it were, the more anti-NATO faction of the party, shall we call them, um, you know, and, and that damaged the view of the party with the public, as it were. Do you, if, do you not I, agree? Yeah, I mean, uh, to a point, I mean, for me, I, I, I my, my private view at the time, I disagreed with that approach, um, if I'm honest with you. Um, I, well, in the way it was communicated, the whole sending it to Russia thing was just something I, and, you know, John felt the same, and, you know, it's one of those times of my, my respect for John McDonald grew even immensely um, behind the scenes. The, you know, John, I think, um, one, of my, one of the things I always feel about John McDonald is I think one of the sad things about that sort of previous time he was in government was that there wasn't a place for people like John McDonald. He's a very talented politician. Um, and, and he saw what I saw. And I think that's me, me, the reason why me and John got on quite so well was that we, we had a similar outlook when it came to these sort of issues and or political strategy. Um uh, and yeah, look, I don't. I said, but what I'd probably, you know, to sort of counter it, I think where that was coming from, uh, an approach was probably about trying to sort of like not give an empty sort of blank check, if you like, as an opposition leader to military action. I think that's where it's coming from. Uh, I think it was probably, if I was honest, I don't think it was, you know, cack-handed sort of a way of doing it. I don't agree with the way it was done, and I think that it was led by certain people who led of the chin on where they stand and they personally, what they privately think rather than, you know, one of the the things of being an advisor that people don't appreciate probably or know about and wouldn't expect them to know about is like, I don't, my my view, I'm asked to to give, I've always liked this divisional labour by the way, I just give my advice, it's the politician that decides, I'm very happy with that. So I'll give my take and I'll say this, that, you know, this is what I think you should do. And especially from a strategic, when you're doing strategy, this is what my theory and what I think is going on. This is what I think you need to do to get through it. <clears throat> and it's up to them to decide. And I've done that and sometimes they agree, sometimes they don't. Uh, and sometimes, by the way, you know, that could be completely wrong advice and I could be wrong. And I'd have no problem with that. Um, and I think that sometimes people who do those jobs rather than give the objective view of what they think is in the best interests and what they think is the best approach to something, just lead straight with what they personally believe. And I think, you know, or even worse, they do it out of office politics where they're trying to get one up over someone else. And I never had much time for that. And I think, if I was honest with you, I think some of the seeds that were sown for the disaster in December uh, um, 2019 was was because there was a lot too many of those kind of advisors who either led of the... either either were, were too busy fighting internal battles of each other rather than think about how we beat the Tories and get into government. Um, and, you know, uh, or they were just, you know, people I, I personally don't think are very professional uh, approach to politics. People are oh, sniffy about professional. You can be professional working a campaign. I met, there's many people that work in Momentum that I worked with in the 2016 campaign that I think are highly professional and be great in, in, in frontline politics. Sadly, I met a lot of people in my time that I think should be nowhere near frontline politics. 
Sadly, some of them uh, influenced the economic position in the last Labour election, they, and these people should not be anywhere near frontline politics and held titles and positions they did not earn or deserve. That's my private view. Uh, uh, and this is, as I said, when I mean by professional approach to politics, I'm talking about people who, who realise that there's things bigger than themselves and there are petty indifferences to individuals. It's people who are there to try and that they realise you've got a collective cause and what you're you're trying to achieve a collective. Um, outcome that you've set upon uh, and as I said you don't need to be in a suit and a tie you don't need to work it's about your outlook and your approach to your day-to-day -day work and as I said I've met people who worked in momentum and activist roles and campaigns who have that outlook uh, and I've met sadly some people who don't and so did a did a bunker mentality set in in the leader of the opposition's office uh, and, and and you know after the after the no, vote of no confidence after the Syria vote, there was a reshuffle and there was a sense that if you were loyal to the leader, you would be, you know, given more of a position than if you were, you know, critical, but, uh, you know, if, advising. If, if you're asking if nepotism and patrimony play parts in politics, sadly they do, regardless of who's leading the Labour Party, uh, it, it will always happen. Uh, patronage is just sadly part of politics. I wish it wasn't. And I've, I'm quite proud that most of the jobs, I've, nearly all jobs, sadly, I've, <laughs> I've had been based mainly on my ability and I've been recruited for them on that rather than who I've known. Uh, but you look, it does happen. And I think I think it comes back to what I was saying before. I mean, our, our approach to tackling some of the real big issues of the last few years owed to that. And this is the sad thing about, for me, Labour Party-wise, because I said I, I see the Labour Party as my family, and taking the job working for Jeremy, especially if they have jobs, and I lost some friends. I mean, I lost some people I really, really liked who just uh, had a bad feeling towards me. And also as an issue with someone like me as well, given the fact that I knew a lot of journalists, it'd be like, I'd get the blame for anything. I mean, like, you, you know, honestly, some of the stuff, I'd look at it and be like, bloody hell. And as a result, you, and also in the office I worked in, as being one of the lead advisors for John McDonnell, who's, you know, as I say, who's a colourful figure. When I first worked for him, I had the best of YouTube played at me every weekend. And I had to, like, defend and, like, come out for... Um, you know, as well as trying to set out, you know, an economic narrative uh, into that, which I think I'm quite proud of in the 2017 election, because I think that helped on the tax guarantee plan through to, you know, a costed alternative approach. I think all that, which is stuff that I sort of drove and had to fight against other people to get in there, I think was one of the reasons we did quite well. I um, mean, that's my private view. And I think not having some of those elements there in 2019 and that approach is probably why we had that outcome. Um, but yeah, there was nepotism that existed and stuff that happened, but it happens across the piece. If I was going to be honest with you, though, the unwritten story is actually what Jeremy did was he opened the door to lots of people who'd never have access to politics. You know, one that, so take Diane Abbott, for example. I really have a lot of time for Diane Abbott because um, I didn't really know her much before. But when I got to work with her, I really respected her. And one thing is the people she brings into her office, she'd bring through people who'd have, you know, she, we, are, are, we had the most diverse um, pad meetings I've ever known of people from, you know, she, she'd bring through and it'd be people around the room and it was just genuinely people from he, 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 that level of experience. And the same with Jeremy. We had lots of people you know from working class backgrounds working and that hadn't worked before and I said I'm from very working class background I'm a kid from a council state and single parent family you know there's not a lot of people like me in politics and there wasn't a lot of people like me in politics before Jeremy Corbyn came in and, and although you might hear X, Y and Z of people who've related to someone working in that administration let me let me tell you right now that happened before Jeremy Corbyn was there and that was always happened but what one thing I noticed about Jeremy is that he actually opened the door to a lot of other people who were not from those backgrounds who were not well connected 
that names that you do not know and have not heard of and who've got experience. And I think Andrew Fisher described it as the sort of the problem they had was there wasn't this level of sort of, he calls them bureaucrats, I'll just say advisors or people in that role. He's right. And I think one of the problems was that, that you rely on those, because of that factionism I mentioned before, where they always felt you was under siege, you didn't have the power of the sort of sinews of the Labour Party at that stage and the PLP was against the powers and the membership. And we never, and although I said it was an English revolution, it was never a full revolution. We never took over those things until very late on. I think it was like, uh, September 2018 before we got control fully of the uh, NEC and the, we managed to make changes after the 27th election to different staffing um, uh, positions in the Labour Party and the, the, the admin but we never took control of PLP um, in any meaningful way if I'm honest with you it was never like a and that's a massive institution a massive part um, and as I said, like so, there was those issues that kicked kicked on and bubbed around, and, and factionism drove a lot of it. And, and as as that situation you're under siege, you say in a bunker. I suppose you know you sort of always sort of there's always a thing coming in. There's a fact you, you do rely on those groups of people you know. And I think you know I was probably out the fold of many of those sort of left groups, if I was honest with you, because I didn't come, I worked for the party, but people from those groups came in. But I mean, I didn't. As I said, it's hard for me to describe because some of these people are really talented and really good. You know, it's just, everyone goes, "Oh, left group," and you think this sort of like evil. They're not. You know, talking about people who want to change the world at the end of the day. And look, there's a good and there's bad. But there's, if I was honest with you, the overwhelming people I worked with were really good. So you you brought up diversity there and and the NEC and um, taking control of the NEC and factionalism. Now these three issues played a part in what was one of the biggest problems for the Labour Party, which was. The anti-Semitism crisis, which, shall we say, had two elements, was one, a movement of anti-Semites sort of into the party, as it were, who became attracted by the party's new left-wing leaning, Mm. um, and how the Labour leadership dealt with these issues. Both of these issues together combined Mm. to form a sort of ongoing crisis. Now, some of the issues included... Pete Wilsman's rant, he he got elected onto the NEC after his rant about Trump supporting Jews. Um, some of these include people that had known Jeremy for some time who had said things on protests or wherever that were, you know, in serious breach of Labour Party's own rules on anti-Semitism that weren't dealt with or they were given sort of, you know, a slap on the wrist instead of a more serious um, approach. These issues really damaged Labour's position not just with the Jewish community but with the country as a whole um, now can you talk to me a bit about it and, and your perspective on it and not just you know what you think about it morally but you know you were you were there at the time you saw some of the things going on so you know anything that you could tell us from what it was like from the inside of that at the time yeah, no, I agree. I think, you know, I always say people, the darkest sort of time I've worked in the Labour Party has been the anti Semitism issue. I just, you know, I'm a very strong anti racist. I mean, my older sister's half Jamaican, my was Irish. Racism and people from our communities, it's something that's, you know, it's in your eyes. You know, it's something you, I've got, you know, very strong personal stories. Um, uh, of that affecting me in my family so you know one of the reasons you join the Labour Party is you're a strong anti-racist period that's your first sort of principle you know uh, and then to find yourself on the the wrong side of that argument it's just it, it's, it's I can't put into words if you're not um so if people look at you, and I say, when I say Labour Party's got family, go, how can you, it's just your friends, and it's that bonds, and therefore when an issue like that, it just cuts you to your core, you know, I can't put it, but I, honestly, it really was, it's just sort of like, even now, talking about it sort of seizes me up. I mean, I never really dealt with it, per se, if I'm honest with you, in the process issue, I'm not pretend I did. I had about two 
issues where it came across my desk and I did. I mean, one was, I mean, sort of known now, the Nashar issue when it came up. Um, you know, and look, um, you know, I, that, her aide came up to me and showed me the stuff. And I've not seen anything. I just was like repulsed by it. And I said to him, you know, he asked me for advice. And I just said, look, I, there's nothing I do there, mate. You're, and I would, you should stay away from that. That's something your, your boss needs to deal with. Uh, and I was quite clear about it. And, um, and I, I mean, the issue came through. And this was really early days of when we was in the leadership structure, to be honest with you. And I got brought into the office with John Jeremy. And they asked my advice. I think Jeremy turned to me and said, what do you think? And I was just very honest. I said, look, I can't defend that. And, you know, I won't defend that. It's wrong. She's got to go. She should be sacked. And there's a few other things said. And I think I just said, like, and she should be bloody sacked like that. And she walked in and my head went down. I was like, fuck, I felt a bit awkward. And then, to be fair, Jeremy's response was he agreed. He completely agreed. He canvassed the views because that's just his nature. And he, you know, he wanted to sack her. Um, uh, and he agreed to sack and I think it's basically she got put in an old maybe either politely you're either going to go you're going to be sacked sort of thing and um, you know and the bit that people don't know about from my memory of it was I think they wanted to go further but they were told that the current um, processes of the party would allow them to take the whip off there was, a, there was an issue there I know everyone's like argues over it now but I remember that distinctly being uh, uh, brought up and they they debated about going further and but they were told they couldn't and therefore they were constrained by process and like the reason why this matters is there's when I told you before about the, the trigger moments I think personally I think this the reason we, I agree with there's a guy called Adam Wagner uh, and I actually agree with him we've had him on the show yeah and I actually agree with him. I think it was an institutional problem the Labour Party and I think regardless of leadership so obviously I mean you know you go oh we're obviously on the Corbyn but I think that's because of the problem you, you massively increased the membership so therefore like, the, the, the population of those people grew <laughs> and therefore you had more of these issues but I think I think it was an institutional thing on a number of levels uh, of a, a culture of infighting and this factionism and, and, and trigger points come up and this is an easy trigger point for me and I think that that's what happened and I think that when these cases came up they weren't dealt with in that sort of legal rational process they should well I think overly legal rational process sometimes uh, and you know and the other time I ever had an involvement with anti-Semitism I was to do, to do I can't remember when it was exactly I remember it was around a March June period and it was developing a zero tolerance line of John Mack um, you know it was my idea I put it through and um, we he landed it really well Ma, and we got a plaudits for it and um, and I wanted to carry on with it but reasons outside of I said it's not my area we made the economy but other people disagreed uh, and I didn't go forward so other people disagreed with the line on zero tolerance in the Labour Party and, and yeah, you weren't allowed to go it, forward with it. From my understanding of it, it was um, to do with the current process in the Labour Party of giving people sort of like a right of reply. I mean, my view on it is that I'm a strong anti-racist. I think my personal view is that if you've done racism regardless of where it is, you bang, you're out, and therefore you've got to prove your reason to be back in. But that's just my view. Some people have this sort of like, you know, you've got to go around the house, you know, you, you know due process, what you want. I've come from a no pass around background, so <laughs> for me, it's quite a simple black and white issue. So you brought up Nashar. Nashar is actually an excellent case because Nashar posted some deeply unpleasant things on social media, mm-hmm. um, was punished for it by the Labour Party, and then apologised. And then she seemed to come to a position in which she reflected on what she'd done wrong. She accepted it. She reached out to the community. You know, Nashar seemed to do all of the things about you know, what you'd want someone to do if they'd said something that was so very wrong that they wanted to atone for. However, Nashar wasn't, you know, Nashar led to Ken Livingston, Nashar led to uh, Chris Williamson, people who who really weren't treated with the same force of, you know, direct, you know, and Nashar wasn't part of the Labour, you know, socialist movement, but... uh, I know, she was elected on a 
selected rather on a progress slate from memory. So and I think also therefore there's a more an olive branch put out to her and a road to return from it, it, the party. And it, because it it went down that faction, I said she was easy. Frame. She was easy to get rid of at the end at the end of the day. Whereas no, Ken, Ken Livingston to, and Chris Williamson, two, yeah, on those two quick things, take to pull up on that. I actually think it was easy to redeem her. See, under the dictatorship of James Mills, if you like, she would have been out, and they, Williams would have been out. Um, uh, um, Ken would have been out. All of them would have been out, right? Under my under you know my iron fist. They're all gone, right? <laughs> so just to be quite clear on that. Um, on the, if, if, if I'd be in charge, and obviously a lot of people disagree with that and say, how can you do these things? But I don't care. My view is if you're racist and you've been involved in racist actions, you're out and you've got to, you've got to come back and prove your innocence. Uh, and that people, that's quite a controversial thing to say, but I don't care. I'm an anti-racist and that's my starting position. When it comes to, I think, the Nashar issue, I think we acted really well and it was a good example. And I, and I think that she got a sort of olive branch reach down and she was able to come back. And it's not a personal issue to announce, by the way, you know, just that's my view. I mean, if you've done that, so you should be out. But I think the problem was it came through this factional issue. I think if you had a much more rigorous process by which these people had to do, you know, a sort of more of a uh, contrition, and if they had committed something that was caused offence or brought the party into disrepute and leaned upon that, and it was much more rigorous. But I think the reason why a lot of these things happened was was because of, if I was going to be brutally honest with you, because of. Um, the, the, the factional frame. From my understanding, I might have it wrong, but I was I was told that one of the reasons we couldn't expel Ken was because the legal advice said he would win in a court of law, and the party would go to go to. This, I might be wrong. But this is what I was told. Um, it would go to a court of law, and we'd lose the case, and therefore even more money would be lost. Now, whether that's right or wrong, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But that's what I was told. It wasn't that there was not desire to get rid of him, and that was obviously just a tight tenuous time because of people that had worked very closely with Ken uh, uh, and you know as I say I think some of those issues were also legal issues I said I never dealt with anti-semitism my approach to anti-semitism as I said before is quite clear in the first episode which we had Adam Wagner um, Adam Langleben former Labour councillor Jewish Labour movement member um, he brought up that a current member of staff with Jeremy Corbyn uh, conceded that he cannot be reached on the issue and that he himself has a problem with anti-semitism now I'm I, mean, I, I, I need to know who that member of staff was, but I mean, because uh, there's, there's a hell of a lot going on behind a member of staff in the Labour Party. My experience with Jeremy was not the case. I mean, I had a conversation once, and he was welling up and was very emotional about the issue because he's like, he was very frustrated. He didn't feel like he could get across and solve the problem. But, di- but do wasn't. you think he had a blindness to when it was happening with his friends and ideological comrades, people he'd 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 been comrades with for decades, who were you know part of. You founded Labour against the witch hunt and and so on and so forth. You know, these were people um, that that he had personal connections to, and and also George Galloway, he was friends yeah. with for many years. So you you, you have to say I that. don't think that I think he, what I think the mistake was. Uh, I think as an advisor, you a mistake personally. I think this one was that there was a focus on process and uh, for whatever reason that might have been, but there's no mistake on process and Jeremy's a very sort of honest person by nature and if someone says these are the rules you've got to stick by them, you've got to show you, Jeremy will stick, he'll, he'll try and put, he's a very, I said, he's a very honest person by nature, so he'll try and do what he thinks to be the most honest, fair thing to do and I think the problem with the, with the structure of the Labour Party, and I think I said Adam Wagner, I think made his view of the of an institutional problem, is because of that. Because we have this sort of like process-driven thing, and some people would be the, the factions and blew that up. 
and, and I mean at advisor level and I think advisors and staff staffers and people use the issue to almost whack each other with almost and that depresses me on numerous levels um, but I think that was a case and I think that exacerbated it and um, with Jeremy in particular no I don't think he's an anti-Semite I think uh, and I think people that say that about him are generally people who want to attack the man and uh, I think he may yeah he's done some he, he miscalculations the rest of it and I think he was be the well, first he, critic you know, he, 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 he's, he, he, the mural and stuff like yeah, that no, he, he has mean, been bl- he's seen it in yeah. front of him and he hasn't seen it as it were yeah, and, personally and, and, and uh, you know he kicked himself heavily for the, his actions and, and, and he privately he did he was really annoyed at himself for ever being in that situation because he sees himself as a passionately racist and I, and I believe him I've been there with him privately being really emotionally upset about it and he's like oh fuck's sake well, kind of thing yeah that kind of like oh and like you know you could sense the sense of regret that he's been framed in this light and look the things you might know there's a lot of Jewish people that I work with people who Jewish who worked in Lotto by the way just so you know yeah, and in senior roles and they felt equally sad that when people are saying you're working in front of something because they saw what I saw yeah. and as I said I don't I would never work for a racist and if I thought he was a racist I would never work for, with one and I don't think it was that I think there's an element uh, I think personally there's uh, some elements of um uh, bad advice and factionalism that fed into this and it, it was like kerosene and I think and as a result an issue that we should have and for me the reason why I think this is so bad because I think it did play into t- December 29 uh, uh, into the result, election more, uh, just has gone more now because it became a competency issue uh, for the party not just the leadership for the party and I think people looked at us and they thought you look a bit weird why can't you solve this issue and I'm, I'm, from, so I'm from quite a working class background and I used to and I've got mates who are not political in any way shape or form and they, they look at me as like he's a political guy we'll take your thing and the reason why I know there's certain issues over the years that that, 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 that I use them as like my sort of like sounding board uh, you know these are the people that thought Ed Miliband you know, confused Ed Miliband with David Miliband and they knew about the, Ed, the, the bacon sandwich you know that kind of people that, that those things that break through you know and they never were then any seventies wasn't something they raised in 2017, but they had raised it with me last year, and I, 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 and and I had cut through, and that's when I and I'm, obviously for me this is my personal sort of you know focus group if you want to call it, but like this is my group of people, and I knew it was a re- it was a real issue, and that's because we hadn't solved it, and you know behind the scenes privately I can't go into them for various reasons, I did really really push as much as I could. Um, and some areas are one, but it wasn't my it wasn't my area, my remit. Um, and, I, and I hold my conscience up because I think areas where I could advise and push things through, I did, I tried. Um, and, it, and it's a real sore spot for me because, as I said, any time it came on my desk, I dealt with it. Uh, and I and I think the way I approached it, others should have approached it. The fact they didn't, you know, it infuriates me because f- for me, so I'm a socialist, and I think what Jeremy Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn, 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 Corbyn are socialists. And the sad thing about what we were trying to do and trying to build and trying to achieve um, was essentially a socialist Labour government and a transformative one. And I think the sad thing for me is, I think in 2017 particularly, we got closest we've ever got to in my lifetime in that attempt at, 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 from opposition. And, um, you know, and I, I feel that not dealing with issues like that and, you know, I very much agree with sort of the Paul, sort of Paul Mason's analysis that, you know, you need that and some of the national security or defence issues should have been dealt with more competently. And I think if they had done it, I think people would have listened to our economic offer. And I think that would have reached out to those voters that we need to win to vote for us uh, to get that Labour government. And it's so hard to win Labour governments. I mean, if you know, understand how elections work in politics, you, you knew how hard 2019 was. 
So on to winning a Labour government. There's no path to a Labour government without going through Scotland. Yes. Whereas, you know... I agree, I completely agree. Scott, Scott, the, the policy to win back Scotland has to be seen as an abject failure under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. So, I mean, not, I think that, it's, I think not it's that it's his fault. Him, yeah, yeah, no, no. I, <laughs> I fully agree. Any roads back, it was under his leadership. We, 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 <laughs> we covered this in, in, a, in a whole Scotland yeah. episode. And, and yes... Who did you have on? Uh, we had Ian Murray and Aisha oh. Hazarika. So, oh, yeah, so Ian, it, it, Ian knows the thing of two being the yeah, last he, man he standing. Might surprise you. Ian, he, I, I don't know if he still was me, but I got him as a friend, and he's someone I've known since he's been an MP. I've got a lot of time for Ian Murray. Um, he's, he, if you ever get a chance, go for a beer with him. He's good. He's good laugh. And my, the only thing I could say I dislike about him, he's a jambo. He's a, he's a Hearts <laughs> fan. I'm a Hibs fan. But I mean, um, he's a lovely bloke. I've got a lot of time for him. My sad moments actually were was when he was not in the shadow cabinet because he was someone I always looked to. I used to privately, I got the scars to prove it as well. Fought for him privately to try and try and keep him in there and I, really and I hope that after this I mean he's done a good deputy leadership I hope he returns so so why did the Labour leadership struggle with Scotland now, Aisha's so lovely as well by the way <laughs> you're hearing that Aisha uh, just uh, I, I, I was close at Ian that's, that's why you're known as the lobby favourite James Mills Lotto, Lotto's lobby favourite so no, come on t- tell me about Scotland then why why did Labour lose uh, I mean I feel my view on Scotland it's not Jeremy Corbyn it is a long-standing slide initiative and someone who cut his teeth working in Scottish politics I mean uh, I, you know, I first worked for uh, Margaret Curran which is a Scottish parliament I went to university in Scotland when I went to St Andrews uh, and Scottish politics is something you know I, I, that's probably where I sort of got to my understanding of politics uh, probably not you know, given given recent results, people would say that explains a lot. But, <laughs> but no, um, but, but, but I mean the point is they were they were outflanked. Right? They were outflanked by the SNP, and they but were that happened, and they that were outflanked. Twenty nineteen, but they were also outflanked by if, the Conservatives. If, if I was honest with you, twenty nineteen was a repeat of twenty fifteen. Yes, if you're my private view. Yeah, and I think that we didn't learn the we didn't learn the right lessons from twenty seventeen. See, so my take on twenty seventeen is probably different to others. See, I was very much opposed to this old we're gonna be more radical. It's gonna be a bigger revolution. I mean I always thought that was silly because I live in England and I'd love to and I wish England was, you know the way I see, I wish it was a socialist utopian loving people that they are. It's not the case. It's, it's not, a not, conservative country. In you know, parts, in England especially, it's a one-party Tory state. <laughs> look you at know. the map. There is, there's, there's a reason why that, that, that is the way it is, and it's to do with lots of issues in our economy, the way it's rebalanced, the way, um, you know, just take simple issue that, like, the inner London, the average salary, median salary is almost, you know, a third higher than the rest of the country. I mean, like, in itself. And there, is it any wonder that the demographics slightly change? It's unkilted. There's so many inequalities, health, wealth and income that prelude, especially in England alone, and de-industrial climate. There's so many reasons for this. And I'm not going to give you like a Danny Dawling sort of reason, but there's a, there's a whole, re- whole multitude to feed into this. So my approach was what we did really well in 2017. And look, I'm, look, I'm biased because this is part of the thing I, I sort of pushed through was that sort of fiscal cr- credibility um, uh, and that sort of you know, my sort of take was um, the mistake from previous labour leaderships was that you had to explain how you pay for stuff you know as I was going back to the issue for Bernie there, and I think his problem and the way I looked at that was have a basket of goods and explain how you're going to pay for it that's that simple sort of you know, te- um, approach to it, if you like, and that's what we did. It's costed, and you could disagree about the costings, whatever. But one of the things I was very proud of in 2017 was the IFS said we'd, we'd, we'd uh, our fiscal rule, we met our fiscal rule, which I helped shape, and I was very proud of that because that was the test that I was aiming for. And look, and on the tax position, the tax guarantee position, that to me was again my look of what 
um, Cameron did in 2015 of shutting down those issues of tax with his tax lock, the rest of it, and how we could readdress that. Also coupled with me and my friend James Meadway looking at how we could actually readdress. Uh, and ironically, this comes from when I worked in Scotland. Our approach to Scotland, um, um, when I worked up there, one of the secret sort of master plans of the Joanne Lamont uh, approach was going to the next election of, of um cutting taxes at the uh, 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 but ironic, ironically what the Tories are doing right now <laughs> advocating or whatever Jeff was of cutting the basic rate which you had power of there and I thought that's a terrible idea but the concept was good and I remember saying to James Meadow over a pint and a red line wouldn't it be great if we did this but you'd have to change the different tax bands because otherwise you just do the basic rate it becomes quite regressive um, I won't bore you with that but essentially one point being was that was when it was like yeah why not let's think about something a bit bolder that no one's done before and then Mead was like yeah we could do that and we could go out and model it and all the rest of it and that's where that whole story came and it become about the approach of we've got to sell it the reason why this long diatribe is about is important is because it came about how do we convince people that you can trust a left or socialist or what you call Labour government with your money and it's going to do things and there's that credibility there baked in how do you do that when Gordon Brown can't do it Ed Balls can't do it so you, and that's about using policy so another one of the reasons uh, you know the Scottish public were very mm-hmm. anti-Brexit and, and Labour you know in 2017 had accepted Brexit and you know and then the position started to change later on it's a compromise position but yeah. so so you know brexit was another big issue that the, the public again it was a competence issue like with anti-semitism as you bring up and, and scotland um especially felt this way they felt that the labor's position on brexit was not competent but i think the reason why look i think brexit i think the brexit is another one of those trigger points where factionalism exacerbated and made it worse made people harden their positions either way um but also look our brexit position was a compromise fundamentally. I mean, my, I was quite I was on the record. I don't think we should have fought that last election. I think it was the worst time to ever fight an election. I mean, it was quite clear what the Tories were trying to do. I mean, for me, and the reason is I think if you want to, we got the strategy wrong. And I'll tell you why I got the strategy wrong in the last month because I can tell you right now here, and I said in numerous interviews what Boris Johnson's strategy was. A good strategy, everyone knows about it. It's not a secret, not held by a few people. Everyone knows. And what Boris Johnson did, and I, you know, if you're standing in the leadership election this time, take a look back on what he did. Um, he he went out and he. Took he was quite popular membership and he, for various reasons uh, but he went out and said an clear alternative his alternative whether you agree with it or not his alternative was I'm go- I want a, um, a free trade agreement with the EU that's my Brexit solution that's my Brexit policy so a clear alternative and he said a few other things on domestic policy but that was his main alternative policy issue that he, he went and won his the leadership on and people backed him he got the ERG and everyone on board then when he came back to Parliament he, he cut off all his internal critics regardless of what you wrote the rights or wrongs that's what he did, no, he did and in, his, in, in brutal efficiency as well in a way that Jeremy yeah. Corbyn would never have, he would have been absolutely he never slaughtered done, for doing so. Even in if the he public. could, by the way, Jeremy would never have done that, even if he could, because that's just the nature. Yeah, of I mean, the, the culling and in the in the reshuffle and was pretty brutal. I mean, yeah, but it, none of them lost. You know, the, the, most of them are still MPs, the ones that didn't stand down. But this yeah. is a good, this is a good point. Yeah, you, you are, I mean, you are correct. But I mean, um, uh, you know, Jeremy, I'll be honest with you, I talked to Jeremy about that issue. He was, he was never in this whole like deselection express thing. That's just not him. It's not his style. And anyone that knows him knows he's actually very mad. What he's not that kind of guy. And he and some of these critics actually from that why is that he wasn't like that um, by the way uh, but coming back to what we're talking yeah, about that's why one of Aaron Bastani's reasons for failure is that they, they weren't more into open selections from <laughs> it but from his perspective it means that the Labour Party was stacked full of people who didn't support Jeremy Corbyn's message so replace them all with loyal people and then there's no well, you've dealt with the internal well, side of things if I get things. back to, to Boris Johnson's strategy I said it was very clear he came back he sort of knew it off all those internal critics he'd built a coalition all politics regardless of internal in the party or outside his back 
on coalitions. It's about working with people you don't always agree with, right? And I'm a very big believer in that. And um, what he did is he built a coalition with the AIG and other sort of strong toys. And he went, and, but the most really strong part of that was going for a soon election, going straight away, because that was always going to be a rickety, a rickety coalition, because he had Matt Hancock. He, he denied it Nadine. throughout. He's like, yeah. I don't want an election, but really, yeah. he wanted an election. Yeah. It couldn't be more obvious. You know, and, and his reshuffle now shows the people he thought he couldn't keep on board, because he thought they'd probably vote against him on certain big issues. That's why he got rid of all yeah, those guys. Because uh, he doesn't think they'll vote with him on his domestic agenda. And the press have written up, that's what I honestly think. But anyway, he, he, that coalition was always rickety. It was always shaken. But the, uh, and the time to go for the election for me was either in that period before he had a deal, before October 31st, because he didn't. But once he did, he had the best time he could to say, look, and I've delivered it. I've got the credibility. Everyone thinks I'm a complete failure. But look, I've got this thing. Even if all of us that follow politics knew that he'd gone against this thing 12 months ago, this was a guy that led the the campaign so he won the election we should never ever have given him that election so you remember the televised debate so we were you know yeah. even Boris Boris Johnson didn't do well in them but I remember one moment when Jeremy Corbyn was asked to sum up his Brexit policy in like a sentence and the entire audience laughed or groaned at him and and that was like that was worrying right fair, but. <laughs> but you understand what I mean it's like yeah. you, you could that was the moment you could see the, the sort of policy proposal coming up. But why with the, was that? The, the I mean, I think I, but if I was honest with you, if I was honest with you about that whole reason why I shouldn't have fought on that, because one, we're fighting an election on the ter- Tories' terms. And I said, this is what I say in my blog post, you go to my Twitter page. Uh, we fight on their terms. And it's also a time when in the party we weren't fully skilled. Well, it's not skilled, but like we weren't fully up to speed. We looked, some of our staff members were either new in role or weren't in role. And, uh, and I know that from working with people in, in the regional level, they felt like that too. And there was also that factionism I mentioned before, I think we're still there we weren't united as a party in at Westminster but in the regions and and elsewhere and I think there's an issue there that needs to be solved and unity is important um, to win elections you can't otherwise but on the Brexit thing in particular I mean for me I think you know I don't really get into this whole should we have been Lexiteer or leave or should we have been second referendum I think you're missing the point the point was we couldn't unite around that position in the party because it was there were so many fault lines for loads of different reasons and our position in the end was a compromise between all those that's why it was a fudge and you don't fight an election like that you don't fight an election your weakest thing Boris Johnson didn't I mean Boris Johnson was trying to avoid the uh, the, the health crisis in the NHS I bet you're right now if you if you if you'd done what I privately was advocating for uh, which was we we didn't go for election we held him into the new year and we let him come up imagine where we'd be right now okay and you're telling me that he would not be weak with a minority government faced with those challenges and our arguments when I think I disagree I think look, it's one of these what if questions in history and I you know people do history always laugh you but but my point being is that I, yeah I privately uh, at very senior levels was arguing not to go into that election and I was publicly saying it for the reasons I thought would happen and you know uh, you look I think the scripple thing was a big mistake and I think some of those other issues that didn't help us um, and didn't put us in the right place we need to be the sort of voters we need to win because bear in mind what you, you need to sort of the voters we need to win um, in some of those very key marginal seats and there's only the Tories only need a 1% uh, swing to get a majority in their favour and with the sort of voters we were fighting for that didn't help us but we made it even worse for ourselves fighting it at that time and the approach going into it exacerbated it because we got the economic position completely and utterly wrong uh, and I think and that's the bit we don't talk about and this is not and I, I blame I don't I blame, if I was honest with you, people I'd, I, and I'm not going to mention them because it's not fair, but I, I, my, my issue would be some of the people at the advisory level, uh, you know, um, that were they thinking how I was thinking in 2017 and in 2016 and previous elections about how do we win? Were they thinking about what you need to know and the people you need to reach and to target? I don't think they were. I think they were thinking more about 
you know, um, their own personal circle of how they could justify what they thought was sort of like, you know, the dissertation on what they think. And I also, I don't think they had some of them had the ability to formulate policy. I think that their approach to policy, as I say, my blog post was copy and pasting what they saw in a progressive um, uh, pamphlet from a think tank. And that's not how you do policy. Uh, and, and also that's a misunderstanding what policy is for. Your values and your uh, uh, um principles and your positions is what define your political position you try and advocate it and policies to add in my view is to add a definition to explain to voters or people you're why you hold those positions you know you know I, I hold pub, you know i believe in public ownership and common ownership and it's not because i you know i think these are sort of like great dogmas it's because you know there's a plethora of evidence suggests that that's in the best interests of uh, in um of, of working people and of people at large and for and also it's uh, it's better for the, uh, taxpayers as well as for, you know across the piece there's an economic reason for doing it is what I'm trying to say it's not it's a it's a means it's not an end and that's a, and that, that's a different approach so what did Corbynism get right and what did Corbynism get wrong I mean I think I think on the on the you know I think what we did right uh, which stage but my the bits when I work from I think obviously I'd say this because it's my area but I thought we got the economy right I think we I think in the period in which I worked for it we made a credible um left or socialist um, uh, argument economically and we brought it back we brought lots of economic policies that people you know take the word nationalization i remember i remember very clearly us trying to get the word nationalization in a press release with i won't mention her name but she was the business secretary at the time and it wasn't it wasn't becca <laughs> and, and the fight we had to have to make that happen uh, over saying it was ridiculous uh, as uh, uh, to the steel industry and it was only it was a real caveat as oh, we could do this it wasn't like we will do this it's like if this happens be prepared to do it you know and also all those sort of like economic uh, positions be it on welfare position that we you know we're going to move back from sort of the, the conditionality sort of aspects of it and, uh, and also the other bits that for me personally I, I pushed for regarding the short working week um, you know this could also give you something I personally I mean pushed for and something I was behind I want to have an address about the labour market of the 21st century um, also about um, I said we talked about common ownership before but also having the stakeholder economy the, the mind of funds and stuff like that things that were passionate to me and sadly I don't think any of the leadership hands to talk about right now but those sort of policy areas that give uh, to tackle wealth income and inequalities of power and democracy and making a more democratic economy I think we got well uh, and uh, on that side of it and there's other areas of policy but those ones I focused on and I thought we did a good job on uh, on uh, and sent an alternative um, on the negatives, look, I mean, we discussed quite a few of them. <laughs> so, so, like, you know, look, I mean, obviously the negatives, we, 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 I think the anti-Semitism we got wrong. I mean, <laughs> I mean clearly. <laughs> I think um, uh, going into, you know, Brexit, I think, you know, did we get it wrong? I think it was it was more that we got, for me, I think we lost the election. That's what we got wrong. I mean, I didn't think we lost two, yes, but in 2017, um, we, 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 we raised a share of the vote to, uh, and we gained seats and we showed that it was possible to make those cases and go forward. We should have built upon it. And sadly, I don't think we learned the right lessons in 2017. And in 2019, I think, you know, if I was going to be humbly, you know, we got, that's what we got wrong. We lost the, we lost the election. You know, and there's John McDonald's. John McDonald's took responsibility for it. The next, the challenge now is to win, and my uh, the next one uh, or, or get us back as close as we can to in contention. And I, my personal view is the way you'll do that is it will be about setting out that alternative. And and as I say, you look to what Boris Johnson did, and you look to what we tried to do in 2017, and when Labour has been successful, is you set out a clear alternative. That's uh, clear community, a united party, clear message, and you know. Credible um, economic position that people believe in, and when I mean credible, I don't mean right wing. I mean you can have a left wing credible economic position. You just got to be able to communicate and explain it. 
So that's my, my sort of take on it. So final question, um, positive note for the future, what does Labour need to do to become a party of power? Look, I mean, one positive I'd say is that we have more seats now than David Cameron had in 2007, I think it was when he won the leadership, 2007, I think it was 2005, sorry, 2005 when he won the leadership, <laughs> get my dates right. We have more seats than he had then. Uh, and, you know, so it's not impossible. I think he had 190 or one, around the 90s and we, and we just have just a little bit more. But <laughs> the, the, the road back is long. I'll be honest with you, as I say, go read my blog post, I have a few things there. We need to upskill our party. We need to... Um, stop taking lumps out of each other <laughs> and sort of work together, be a bit more holistic uh, in our pro- pro- approach. But we shouldn't lose our ability to try and provide an alternative on some of the issues that are affecting people every day. And we won't get back into power if we think that we're going to recreate the, ni- uh, the situation of the 1990s and that policy approach. Um, so that'd be my, my view. Stop fighting each other, come together uh, after this election, but also realise that we have to be serious about because the, the honest truth is... The, the press are going to ignore us for the next two or three years because it's going to be all about the Boris Johnson show and what's happening on the back benches of their party. And what we need to do is get ourselves together in a policy platform we can defend and put out to the country. So if the t- situation comes back, if it is, you know, take coronavirus to one side, but the economy slips away or some other big issue comes up and there's a window when we can talk to the country before the next election, we need to have ourselves organised. And I, I think we need to upskill our party behind the scenes as well because I think we need to get ourselves prepared to political part of the 21st century and that also means investing in places like Scotland but also by the way I want the things I want to stop can we stop talking about the Red Wall that is a Tory construct it's the Midlands and the North and we need in the Midlands always gets ignored I live in the North uh, but we need to be thinking about how we can win back seats in the Midlands so it was, and, and before anyone sort of blames Corbyn completely for that there's loads of MPs who hold the blame there um, so you know uh, and I think that we need to um, think about how we come together as a party how we have a strategy to win more seats in England and in Scotland but we need to fund Scotland as well. Thanks so much for joining us, James. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Corbynism, the postmortem. I'd like to thank my guest, James Mills, for joining us. And if you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing to my Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash And I look forward to seeing you all next time.